Welcome to the Free Birth Podcast, a supportive space for people who are learning, exploring, and celebrating their autonomous choices in childbirth. Together, we'll unpack truths, share personal stories, and claim our ability to birth freely and intuitively. Here's your host, Emily Saldea. I had the honor of talking with a personal hero of mine, midwife Mary Lou Singleton. Having found feminism at a very early age, Mary Lou set out on the path of supporting women and families. She has an eclectic and radical background from living and training with and under Ina Mae Gaskin, from being licensed to now unlicensed and running an alternative community clinic, Mary Lou possesses a wisdom of the elders that needs to be heard. We dive into the pitfalls of licensing, doulas, the dangers of ultrasound, and how to build community in our own backyard. I was born in 1969, and I had a very crappy entry into the world because of industrial birth practices. Mm. And my mother um, didn't see me or hold me or touch me for the first three days of my life, not because I had any problems, but because um, I was being kept in the nursery the whole time in a little plastic box. Mm. And I, I was born on the Christmas holiday and they were short staffed. And my mom kept asking for me and no one brought me for three days. Damn. So I never bonded with my mom. And I, I really think that drove a lot of my, my feminism, even from like a really early age. Like I've just always been a women's rights activist. I, I remember um, being, getting in trouble at a, uh, church picnic for arguing with a priest about women's art <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I was, I was five years old, you know, yeah. I mean, that was like, I was really young and, and arguing with priests and getting in trouble. I, I called him a silly goose. And that was so horrifying to my whole family. Such a <laughs> mild thing to call him. <laughs> he is a silly goose. <laughs> He's a silly goose among other epithets. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I remember being sent to the, I went to private Catholic school until fifth grade and being sent repeatedly to the priest's office because, you know, I had sat there with my arms folded going, well, that doesn't add up. That doesn't yeah. make sense at all. <laughs> None of it makes any sense. It's just a big lie. And then, you know, it's, and like most of patriarchy, it's all designed to drive intelligent females insane, you know, so it feels crazy sitting there where all the received knowers are just parroting it back and but none of it makes any sense um so from the time I was really young like first second grade I'd always wanted to help women have babies and I was told that means you want to be an obstetrician and so I was good at school and I worked really hard to to be at the top of my class and went to you know huge working class high school and and was one of the valedictorians of this, the class and got into a really competitive college on a merit scholarship thinking I wanted to be an obstetrician. And so I was tracked really hard from first grade on to go to med school. Wow. And, and when I was in college, my sophomore year, um, I took an anthro class called Sex and Culture and learned about midwifery. And it was the, the first time in my life I'd ever heard of midwifery in a contemporary context. And it was like this classic light bulb experience of like, mm -hmm. this is what I've always wanted to do. It puts together my feminism, my love of health, my activism, my politics, 
my spirit, my spirituality, this, it all fits into this. And so I immediately dropped organic chemistry, which I hated and started, um, moving toward being a midwife. And I, I did an internship at the time I was taught, well, they're only nurse midwives. Right. So I did an internship while I was still in college at a birth center run by nurse midwives. And they were great. They were old school. They'd had their own babies at home. Some of them had been unlicensed midwives who, who then went on to become nurse midwives. Um, they were independent, but they had a lot of really horrible attitudes toward, toward non-nurse midwives. Like they would sit and tell me stuff like, oh, you know, those lay midwives, they'll do, you know, those, they sew people up with fishing line. They learn through correspondence courses. Like they're, they're not safe. They're not safe. And so I'd never heard anything else. But then in their library, I found a copy of Spiritual Midwifery. It was like, who's this lady? I need to talk to her. Like, this is, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next year, I was still planning to go to CNM school. I got accepted into Yale's post-baccalaureate program. And I wrote a letter to my, my last semester of school. I wrote a letter to Ina Mae Gaskin and asked her if I could come study with her. Nice. And amazingly, she sent me a letter back. This is before any electronic communication. Sent me a letter back and said, let me know when you're coming. And Beautiful. So I lived for a summer with Ina Mae on the farm, and that completely ruined me for Yale. Right. Like, never, at the time, Yale had a policy that um, you'd be kicked out of the program if you even attended a home birth. Um, there was a midwifery student at Yale who was kicked out of the program for birthing her own baby at home. How dare she? Yeah, I'm just total like patriarchal fascist policies. And so and you're it, and you're still like coming into your own feminism from being very much uh, thinking that you're meant to be in the system, right? Right, and and being trained in this at a very liberal liberal arts college that um, reformism is the way, right? Mm-hmm. That. Um, that you, we can fix the system mm-hmm. to accommodate feminism. This is long before I realized, like, oh, you can't, you know, the, you, you, you can't be autonomous in that system. Women can't actually be sovereign in a patriarchal system. Right. So, and I hadn't had a baby yet, um, but when I was on the farm, Ina Mae, like, taught me radical feminism. And she taught me about the witch hunts. She helped me confront my own my own internalized racism that, you know, having been raised in basically an all white town, mm-hmm. mostly white college, that being this small town working class kid, I'd never really even thought about a lot of things. Totally. Ina really helped educate me in a way my fancy liberal arts education hadn't. And, um, and at the time there were only 14 States in the country where, where it was legal to help someone have a home birth. Um, midwives, these are the women who, who brought birth back from the ashes. You know, the, the women who, um, in the sixties and seventies were, were tired of being raped in the hospital. And were like, there must be a better way than being knocked out and having an episiotomy and forceps. And they just, they started having their own babies at home. Mm-hmm. And, and then some of the women were more drawn to it than others to helping them. And some women started gathering a lot of experience with it and being the one people called and, holding the responsibility for a lot of women. And then those women started getting targeted by the authorities and um, going to jail. And a lot of home birth midwives were still being, being persecuted. And um, 
the push even among the farm midwives was for uh, we could it was another reformist effort exactly yeah we we can fix this by we can write our own rules Mm -hmm. and they were just inventing the CPM like I was on the farm when when the CPM was just just being invented and a lot of those were old farm midwives like they were women with good intentions Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was reared up by that generation that were tired of going to jail and thought licensure was the answer. Um, I moved to New Mexico. I had my own baby at home, my first child. Um, it was a wonderful birth, but there were a few things that were really not okay about my birth. And when I was teasing out the trauma of, of my home birth, I just kept coming to everything that went wrong with my birth happened because I trusted the midwife more than I trusted myself. Oh, yeah. And, um, and that was a real eye opener for me. Um, I gave birth before I started apprenticing and, and, um, my ideal after that birth was, Oh, if I ever have another baby, I'm not, I'm not even going to have a midwife. Like I don't know. What does that say about your path? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I still felt at the time that, um, you know, I, like I was the home birth midwife in my town who was supportive of unassisted birth, you know, mm-hmm. that I, I was like the only one who, who felt like, you know, of course women have that right. The free birthers are where it's at. Like, that's the ideal. If women don't feel comfortable enough doing that, then the next step the, would be having a home birth midwife, but you know, don't go to the hospital, you know? Sure. Um, so, and I, I had no idea how much flack I would take from other midwives who would throw at me like, you know, unassisted birth is dangerous. And they'd use exactly the same arguments as, um, pro hospital birthers. Mm It's like, well, what if there's a shoulder dystocia? What if the, what if there's a need for resuscitation? What if who's going to save them? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They can't be trusted to do it on their own. There has to be an authority figure. There has to be an expert. Well, that's, I mean, that's what I remember being so blasted in the face about when I joined the doula community, which I I joined when I was a teenager um, at 17. And, you know, everyone was like, trust women. We stand with women. Trust women. Trust birth. But the second someone doesn't want medical management, they're irresponsible. They're stupid. They're dangerous. They don't care about their baby. And I remember being so young being like, wait, isn't this a massive contradiction? Right. And the answer is right. yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It is. And, and I mean, it don't even get me started on doulas. Like they weren't uh-huh. even a thing when I started, I mean, doulas are completely liberal reformist effort that mm-hmm. pretending to be radical. I know. <laughs> I know. And we, we have to keep finding ways to talk about that and teach that because, you know, I, I know a lot of doulas who are just starting to wrap their head around that, but they need to, they need to have it spelled out for them. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very hard because it feels personal. Like we, we've all been trained to personalize everything. You know, we're very reactive culture and, um, we can't critique any systems without, people yelling that their feelings are hurt. And then because of female socialization, you know, oh my gosh, that's the worst thing in the world to be accused of, of hurting someone's feelings. I better back off on my political analysis of the doula industrial complex. Right. Because all we're doing, all it's perceived is that we're shaming women. Right. So I did, um, become a licensed midwife in New Mexico, which at the time felt, um, very radical compared to, you know, I, I, 
you know, remember I was on my way to become an obstetrician right. and, and then to be a CNM and then ended up being, you know, apprenticing in New Mexico, which is, was a completely direct entry apprenticeship. No, this is before there were any MEEC accredited schools. There were a couple schools like Seattle Midwifery School, which was like so cost prohibitive. I was a working class kid, a single mother at this point. Mm. Uh, even maternity out of the lose was completely cost prohibitive to me. So I apprenticed with old school midwives who had, you know, been there from the beginning and got a really good old school apprenticeship. Like, you know, you're, you're going to live the life of a midwife. Um, and, um, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, but it was in the context of licensure. So there were a lot of regulations like, you know, you, you can, you can serve women within these parameters, but if they're a day before 37 weeks or a day after 42 weeks, you have to transfer all the reasons you, you know, just a list of like uh-huh. when you have to transfer. Um, so, and I worked with midwives who would sometimes, you know, I think there are always rules being bent, but it's very hard whenever you've decided to become a licensed healthcare professional, even if it's kind of in a radical context, like, you apprenticed and didn't go to any school and you're doing home births, you're still carrying a license. It's very hard to bend the rules because now people are projecting authority onto you, Mm -hmm. which means if something goes wrong, they're going to blame you. And that you midwives end up practicing defensively in the same way. Exactly. People in the hospital are. It's an impossible position. Yeah, it really is because you have to betray somebody as a midwife. You have to either betray the system you've agreed to, um, be aligned with, or you have to betray the women who are paying you and that you're walking with and that you've come to love. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's impossible. Right. I mean, I did do a lot of activism to ensure that Medicaid covered home birth and the vast majority of the people I served were not paying me out of their pocket. Medicaid was paying for their births. And I feel very, very strongly about, um, access to all birth options for, for low income people, just having been raised poor and having been a broke single mom as my entry into motherhood. I, you know, my, my heart is always with the poor and the working class. Um, so, you know, in that sense, there's that, but it's still like, yeah, now the state's paying you. (laughs) Right. I was going to say in a way, isn't that still a little bit reformist? Oh, absolutely. It's reformist. Absolutely. It's, um, I just, I get, it gets thrown on me a lot. Like you were only serving privileged women. And I guess I'm a bit defensive sure. because well, like 80% like, of the people are, yeah, totally. most of the people I'm taking care of, I'm taking care of have been on Medicaid. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, but it is, it's an impossible situation. And it's, um, it, you know, when I would have, um, midwifery friends and colleagues who had practiced illegally, some of them would move here to New Mexico because they were tired of I mean, some of them would move here with like a cease and desist order on their tail or mm-hmm. threat of jail time on their tail. And they just wanted to be legal. They just wanted to practice in a place where jail wasn't going to happen just for doing a normal birth. And what all of those women repeatedly said was the, um, the clientele is very different. The level of responsibility is very different on the part of, of women choosing home birth whenever they're choosing a licensed professional mm-hmm. and insurance will pay for it versus they got to find you underground. Yeah, absolutely. It's just yeah. another doctor. It's just another person of authority that, that they're utilizing. Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, I wouldn't go so far to say it's exactly the same as that, 
I mean, really, like it's it's a huge leap to have a home birth, even in a licensed state like it's, you know, no, there's no licensed state that's doing more than five percent of the births. In fact, I think no, there really isn't a licensed state that's doing more than two percent. I guess um, I guess what I mean is that it's more it's in it's it's a space of the the client or the mother just genuinely not knowing because it's billed as the best of both worlds. You know, you can bring everything you need to stay quote unquote safe at home with this licensed midwife who is trained in the medical paradigm, but you're still going to have a normal birth. And, you know, it's billed as this like wonderful compromise. And obviously that's not the case most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I do think, and I think it's getting worse. Like, yeah. I really think that it's, um, as licensure becomes the norm, as the CPM becomes the norm, and as we get generations further down the line away from these radical, you know, I'm going to do it on my own terms, women who, um, you know, who started the contemporary, I guess, in these days, like we'd have to call it the contemporary white midwifery movement who went from, you have to go to the hospital. You're going to get knocked out. You're going to have a huge episiotomy. Your baby's going to be pulled out with forceps. You're going to be told not to breastfeed. Like the women were leaving that brought it back on their own terms. Those were the women I trained with. Uh Now women are being trained by people who've never known anything, but states Uh rules and regulations. And that has really changed the flavor. And I do think you're right that there's, it's much more authoritarian than it was even 20 years ago, for sure. Well, and again, I mean, in a way it has to be because of the very tight restrictions that are rooted in the obstetrical model, um, you know, that, that put that position, like you said, that position the midwife to act defensively. Like I I just was told yesterday by a girlfriend of mine who's pregnant in Los Angeles that she interviewed with a midwife, um, one that I I have known and and respected for quite some time. And she told me that at her interview, this midwife let her know that she requires a uh, physical signature on a contract that's on an agreement that says, if at any point in your birth, I want to transfer you, you agree that you will go no questions asked. What? Yeah. Okay, that doesn't it sounds a little fifty shades of gray, no right? Shit. Like, it's <laughs> super, she, super weird. And you can't consent before Of course before not. Before the it, event. It, it just it it really highlighted I mean, I was raging yesterday about many right. things, but that was some cherry on the top of, you know, being like, wow, like this is really what it's come to. And, and I, and I, I responded to my friend being very upset and she said, oh no, I get it. You know, she has to cover her own ass. And I was like, but this is the problem. This is why licensed midwifery is an impossible, um, and ultimately very bad idea because you're going to drop 5,500 bucks on a woman who is saying, I am so in control of your birth that if at any point I get scared or I want you to leave, this is actually about me. Your birth is about me and my fear and having to watch my own back. Fuck that. Absolutely. It's, you know, we really should have fought for full decriminalization Mm -hmm. rather than licensure. And, and that, you know, forced professionalization has destroyed midwifery as a women's liberation mm-hmm. movement. And this is, it's just heartbreaking to me. It's, it's heartbreaking. And then the, the next layer to me that is so heartbreaking is that the consumer, the woman really doesn't get that. And so no. 
it's it's this can, it, that's kind of why I said it's the same as a doctor is it's like this next layer of women thinking that by hiring a licensed midwife they're really going to get uh, autonomy and support and they're just going to have that woman knitting in the corner but she's totally there for emergencies like this it's it, you know it's this bypass that people aren't even aware of um, right. or this huge cultural blind spot that's very intentional and very you know systematically uh, intentionally disempowering and keeping midwives handcuffed and keeping women can you know dis, um, being submissive like the whole thing is so clearly intentional but but the consumer doesn't piece those you know pieces together no and even that word consumer is part of the problem mm -hmm. right that that's not a word of somebody who's in charge of the process right so let's let's go back to your story so you <laughs> you are now a cnm in new mexico is that no i'm i'm not a cnm i'll never be a cnm i really have a lot of hard feelings about that profession and um Oh, I've just probably said too much. <laughs> so, but I, I would never become a nurse midwife. I'm, yeah. I'm a, a family nurse practitioner. So I, I have the basically um, in a poor state like New Mexico that desperately needs health care, being a family nurse practitioner means I can do everything a doctor does except call myself a doctor. Okay. So I offer um, primary health care to families. Um, in, I'm autonomous. I have my own clinic. I, um, I really um, made this move. Um, I needed to leave midwifery for multiple reasons, one of which was like the constant fear of being blamed mm. if anything went wrong, just made midwifery less of a joy than sure. it had been. But also my youngest child um, is a pediatric cancer survivor. And when he was dealing with cancer, I just, I couldn't attend births anymore. I just, um, I wasn't able to yeah. I, I, he needed a hundred percent of my attention during that time. And so I decided, um, to go the family nurse practitioner route because I've, you know, I'm also an herbalist. I, um, I've been an herbalist for, for over, gosh, at this point, like 30 years. I love herbal medicine. I love holistic medicine. I love helping people take care of their health and decided that I wanted to just have like a general health clinic so I put, you know, put myself through the process of uh, becoming a nurse practitioner. That was an interesting experience. Mm -hmm. um, and now I have a clinic where I have a full herbal medicine pharmacy. I take care of families who want to make their own health choices. Um, so I take care of a lot of families who have chosen not to vaccinate their children um, because there's really no one else will take care right. of those families. Right. Uh, and, and I know from my own experience with my son and needing, um, you know, I needed someone to act as a midwife for me when my son was going through cancer care far more than I needed anybody holding that space for me during either of my births. I had two very normal, straightforward births. I've, I've been in labor less than 10 hours in my whole life and I have two children. I, I didn't, I didn't need anybody. I didn't want anyone like talking to me, touching me, asking me if I was okay in birth. But when my son had cancer, I really needed someone to hold my hand and remind me to breathe mm -hmm. and help me make decisions yeah, and all of, of that. And so understanding that um, there are times when it is necessary to interface with the medical system and wanting to be that primary care provider to help people, you know, be able to have that interface, but mostly keep people out of that system. Like I always offer herbal and natural remedies or just waiting it out when people come in more than, than writing prescriptions, you know, writing prescriptions, isn't my, 
my joy at all. So how, so how does the this... medical community treat you and respond to you? Cause I, I assume you have to, in some way, interact with them with the clinic. I feel like I have really good relationships with, um, with the medical community in my town. Um, New Mexico is kind of different that there really is this incredible lack of healthcare providers. And generally most doctors here are very supportive of nurse practitioners because they're just happy. Somebody's taking care of someone. Mm -hmm. We have such a shortage of primary care. We, I live in Albuquerque, which is the best served of New Mexico, but, um, you know, Mexico is the poorest state in the country. We're very third world in a lot of ways. Like it, it well, it's not unusual for it to take nine months to get in with a specialist, even if you live in the urban area here. Mm. So um, the primary care providers are holding it down yeah. and managing yeah. really complicated things. And, and because of that, there's not animosity and, um, and nobody really minds what's going on in my clinic. I think with, with the unvaccinated kids, I'm sure there's some people like I'm 100% supportive of people making that choice not to vaccinate their children. Obviously, you know, I, I feel like that's 100% the parent's choice. And a lot of providers, even if they're supportive of choice, work in systems that are telling them they can't take care of those families. Exactly. And in many ways, I think there are a lot of providers happy that I'm, I'm the hub for that. Mm. You know, I am really aware that my practice is likely to be ground zero for, for a measles epidemic if one comes here, you know what I mean? It's, um, it's kind of inevitable, but, um, but I'm, I'm all right with, you know, I feel so strongly about, about that particular issue. Like I'm so opposed to forced and coerced care. And, um, there are other providers that are similarly pro-choice on that issue that work in systems that don't allow them to serve those families. Yeah. Okay. So then you're, uh, you're, you do become a CPM or you're just the, you're the nurse. Well, I was a CPM way back Yeah. and I was actually on the board of the NACPM, but I let go of my CPM. I let go of my midwifery license. So yeah, that's where I want to go. So talk to me about that point where, what does that look like? You're attending births as a CPM and what happens? Well, at this point, I really feel like, um, and this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm so excited about what the Free Birth Society is doing. Like, I really feel like the push needs to be to encourage women to educate themselves and empower themselves to the point where they understand their real, their real sovereignty over their birth and to free us from the need of of professional midwives. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, so, of course. I, or, and I'm even like, in working with professional midwives, knowing that you are hiring the midwife and that you do have legal rights and that you, you know, in theory, it's a bit utopian, but, but you know, the, the more educated and powerful women feel in their own sovereignty, even engaging in a licensed system, um, they still ultimately would be able to hold the choice and power to a degree, which right. No, and I know plenty of midwives who, who, um, serve women, not the state, even though they carry a license. I mean, they, they do it at great risk to themselves, but I do know those women still exist. I don't think that's the norm anymore. No, it's not. Unfortunately. And I think that, um, you know, what I tell women is if, when you're interviewing midwives, you, one of your first questions should be is, you know, what's your attitude toward unassisted birth? What's your attitude toward free birth? And that 
Mm-hmm. The midwife's response to that will tell you everything you need to know about how autonomous you're going to be allowed to be within her practice mm-hmm. and your decision making. If if a midwife is opposed to freely chosen unassisted birth, I would definitely recommend not hiring that midwife. Right, because it says so much. It says you exactly. need me there. I don't trust birth. Birth birth needs to be managed. Yeah, I don't trust women to make decisions. I don't trust decisions. women. Yeah, it says everything. Right. Right. Exactly. So it's, um, yeah, that's, that's where I am right now. Just, um, I just no longer think licensure is the answer. I really wish I'd listened more to the, the dissent, like the old guard that was opposed to the CPM and opposed to licensure. Um, women like Jill Kent and Gloria LeMay. And I mean, there are many of them, but those are the women I remember being really vocal at the Mana meetings, um, back in, in the early nineties of, um, all of their warnings have come true. You know? mm-hmm. Exactly. And I've, I've sat at the feet of many, many elder midwives around the country um, who really believed in the early 90s, believed that this was the answer, and now are absolutely heartbroken and, and acknowledging that it absolutely was not the answer and set us back. Exactly. Exactly. And now we're, you know, and I hope it's okay to talk about this on, on this particular podcast, but now we're dealing with this reactivity of so many women have been, um, treated poorly and have had, um, had traumatic births with licensed midwives, that there's a real um, rage and hatred toward midwives happening. Mm-hmm. And that reaction to that is leading to, um, you know, that's not a good place to make decisions from either, right? Like we, we've created another, it's just another layer of the problem of now people are reacting out of trauma. And and I've um, seen it go both ways. Like I've, I've interviewed a lot of women who had that experience or, you know, was treated terrible in their prenatal by their midwife or their birth center midwives. And so they were backed into this corner where they felt that their only uh, good option was to free birth. And then they went on to have you know, a super dope birth. But like you said before we were recording, and I think this is so, so, so powerful because it's true that, that I I agree that, that most first time mamas, uh, really do best with some form of guardian or support or, um, you know, elder midwife, uh, support. The problem is they aren't available. How do you find that? How do you find them? Like I would have loved to have that, uh, almost fictitious person or, or, or very, um, very rare, you know, unicorn of a midwife that was not beholden to any systems, you know, and was only there, uh, to love me and guide me if I needed it. And I could have absolutely used that when I had an unexpectedly, you know, 52 hour birth, um, you know, and, and this is the problem is it? Yes, absolutely. People are leaving the system from trauma, from being, you know, as a reactive, um, Space, but it's impossible because if the only option is licensed midwifery, which is so likely to let somebody down, yeah. you know, then then what are we going to do? Well, we have to bring it back from the grassroots again, and women have to help each other yeah. give birth and learn. And the same thing that was happening in the sixties and seventies of like, you read the books, you you. Um, you know, you can do it yourself, but I, I agree. I think most first time moms, um, need 
somebody there holding the space. And I think that that's true to our species. Like, like we were saying before, before we started recording that there, um, there are many societies that are documented where women do birth alone and birth unassisted. But most of those societies, everyone that I know of, the first birth is attended by the grandmother or an auntie or some, an older woman attends the first birth. And, you know, we, the archetype of the midwife is ancient and predates patriarchy and professionalization. Uh, are we willing to just destroy this sacred archetype, you know, and on the altar of individuality is, mm-hmm. is what I see happening too. And, and how, you know, and I'll take responsibility for my role in, in, in contributing to this problem. I really thought licensure was the answer. I really thought I was young. I was idealistic. I really thought that the women inventing the CPM and norm were right, that they could write their own rules, that Mm -hmm. we could do this where women were in charge. The women who, those women who were at those tables were, they were these, these warrior women who had, many of them had been to jail. Many of them had had their own babies unassisted, you know, they they weren't fools and they certainly weren't sellouts, mm-hmm. you know, they were just trying to keep women out of jail for right. the most part. Oh God. It's, we're in a mess. You yeah. Know? It's we're, such we're just, a mess. Like so many things we're dealing with at this point in human history, it's just the perfect storm of, of so many vectors. So I want to go back to wherever it was for you. Was there some sort of specific story around you're holding a license and then you realize in some way, shape or form that that is no longer appropriate or aligned with you. T- tell me about that, that transition in your life. You know, I think it was pretty gradual. I, um, I really felt like I could do it, you know, do it both ways. And it's hard to speak about these things because of legalities, but I'll just uh-huh. say that, um, you know, the, I, I did serve women, not the state when I held a license. And I think that, um, it just got increasingly harder to do that as the, um, the mindset of the women seeking midwifery was really changing. Like I went from, you know, I went from, um, a norm of if, if someone was having like second or third trimester bleeding and I, and I was concerned and I was suggesting an ultrasound, then the norm was for women to really push back and not want that ultrasound uh-huh. it to everybody demanding an ultrasound uh-huh. and, and kind of being in this position of like, I can't tell her not to get an ultrasound. Cause then if there is a right. problem, I'm going to get blamed for it. Um, from, um, you know, this, the, the, the mindset of people seeking home birth was really changing because of professionalization probably, but also because our culture, like we're a total cyborg culture now, like people are, are completely bonded with technology and the, you know, the ultrasounds are one like prime example of that, of, of people want that ultrasound. Like the baby is not real to them until they can see it on the computer screen. Yep. And it's the total narcissistic selfie culture of, Oh, it's so gross. Totally. And, and even, for peace of mind, I don't yeah. bond. I've heard so many women say, I don't bond with my baby until I see them on the screen. It's like, you're not even bonding with your baby. You're bonding with like a echo. electrical <laughs> simulated image oh. that authority figures and robots have created. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, 
it's yes. Yeah, so that that cultural trend of of the cyborg kids coming in, you mm-hmm. know, um, for lack of a better term of what's happening. Well, and that's what they said at the the farm. I did a midwifery assistant like training thing there a couple years ago, and um, and we were talking about how the transfer and C section uh, outcomes have changed so dramatically there because you know they used to be famous for having this incredibly low. Uh, transfer and C-section rate. And, and so I was kind of digging into them about it. And they were like, to be honest, it's the women, like women have changed. They want to transfer. They ask for C-sections. It's, it's completely different who we're serving now than, than 20 years ago. Right. To your point. Yeah, exactly. And part of that is that word consumer and how home birth has been turned into a commodity. Yeah. And it's, it's this, um, you know, my friend, Michelle Pacino, who's very, very smart. And she, she is, she talks about how that documentary, the business of being born, um, really, she's like, it screwed us. You know, it turned home birth into a commodity for educated upper middle-class women. Uh And, and I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I think that, um, once it becomes a commodity, um, people's, you know, they're purchasing something, they're, they're, it's different because to me, the beauty of, of home birth was always that it couldn't be commodified, that it was, it was truly <laughs> radical. <sighs> and now people are purchasing a home birth mm-hmm. and they want a guarantee that everything's going to be safe and they want to make sure you got the right credentials. And, um, well, it's kind of the big like depiction of the birth center, like they're buying the spa birth. Right, right. And the birth centers are even worse. I mean, I'm still like, you're, you're much more likely to get a radical experience with a licensed home birth midwife yes. in your own home yes. than you are at a birth center. But, where, more, but more because a birth just happens. And so maybe maybe yeah. the, the midwife will be late or, or, you know, whatever because of the wildness of birth. If they don't have to leave, right. the chances that things will happen in a normal way, yes, of course, are greater. But yeah. They're much greater. The chances that she's going to realize oh, like I totally could have done it myself or I did it myself. Like the chances that she's going to understand she did do it herself are greater. Mm-hmm. Also just the, um, just that magic of the spirit arriving at home and in, in like the spirit arriving at home and the whole sense of the spirit of place and what a home is. And that it's, you know, I'm usually a very verbal person, but it's such an ineffable, magical thing when the spirit arrives at home, right? Mm-hmm. Where the baby was made and yeah. you can eat out of your own fridge and go snuggle in your bed. It's a big deal. Right. Right. And even beyond that, of just the very, um, the archetype of the home, you know, of just what that means to be in your home when you give birth and when your baby arrives there. And it, yeah, it is like we can break it down into all the pieces, but it's so much bigger. The whole is so much bigger where a birth center, like you're driving there in labor. For one thing, like I, I was like so wild and beyond conscious thought during both of my births. There's no way I could have gotten in a car and gotten gone anywhere. It would have been like trying to put a cougar in the car to get, but it is like that. It is like trying to put a cougar in the car and it's the (laughs) first step of dumbing down and silencing the process because when a woman knows she's going to transfer, um, willingly, that's her plan, you know, which obviously as a doula, I've, I, that, that was the vast majority of people I was attending. They, they, one of two things happen, either they still get wild and then wish they didn't have to get in the car and it's horrific or they don't let themselves get wild because they know that 
you know, they have to time it right. And it just fucks the whole thing. Exactly. So that's a huge intervention. And in my opinion, like the, the primary messed up intervention, cause you're right. It prevents the woman from going animal. It completely prevents her from going into her primal power and birth centers, um, that, you know, they thrive on that. Like that's their whole, Ugh. that's their whole trip. I was like, you are going to get in the car and come here to a place that's better than your home, right. but not the hospital. And, um, and so then, yeah, so women aren't like going animal in the same way because you, I don't care what someone says. I know there are people who've had great, you know, what they feel are great experiences in the birth center. You can't deny that that's a completely different process to just let yourself go wild in your space and know you're staying there to having a tentacle and rationality trying to figure out when to go. But this all goes back to women being socialized to accept crumbs and to reframe when anything is just a little bit better. So, so if, if they're not having, you know, the hospital birth, which as we know, birth centers transfer at a disgusting rate, but oh, it's so high. It's, it's disgusting. It's some, I mean, really from the stories I hear, it seems like it's over 50% yeah. in my time. All the women you know, I know this year, every single woman I know this year having their first birth at a birth center has transferred into C-section. Well, to C-section, not every just. Every single one. Uh, wow. Yeah. And because they don't, they don't midwife their, their clientele when they go in where to me as a midwife, it was like, okay, if we're going in, she needs me more than she did at her house. Like because at the home, I'm just sitting there knitting. And like I said, my ideal was always like as hands off as possible and, and unassisted. So I, I felt like if we were going in now, she needs a midwife. Like now she needs a bulldog. Right. And because they're listening too much. They're hearing D cells as the baby's coming through the bones. They're freaking out. They're, they're only giving women these short amounts of time to get a baby out where most, many, many first births take longer than two hours of pushing many. Absolutely. And, and it's, um, right. I mean, just those, the rules, the rules, the rules, and even beyond the rules, like there, there are women, I've talked to women in my town who are birthing at the hospital because they like the rules. You know, uh-huh. they've actually said that to me. I like it that they have rules. I like it that they're safe. But even beyond the rules, the way they're selling, they're basically selling patriarchy. Like uh-huh. they're selling this myth that they're safer than home when they have no evidence to base that on. I guess There's, it would only be what I've heard is that um, many of them are across the street from the hospital. Yeah, but some of them aren't. Like the one in my town is actually very far from the hospital. Uh-huh. It's like uh, many people who birth there live closer to the hospital than that. So, yeah, you're right. There are like the parking lot birth center where it's mm-hmm. like, geez, you know, how much more obvious can you get right. that you don't trust the process? And you well, know? And that's, that's the blind spot. That's the bypass that I think is happening of like, well, we'll be extra safe because we'll be at this really nice place that's right across the street in case anything happens. You know, and that to me says I absolutely will have a hospital birth in one way or another, especially if you're a first time mom. Um, but it also just says, I understand nothing about birth. Right. Right. And it's, yeah, I mean, just everything they're selling. Like I hear the phrase like spa birth. It's like a spa. It's like a spa. It's what, what cougar wants to give birth in a spa, Gross. right? Like yeah. what, what bear is going to pick a spa? Like I'm like, give but me a cave is, or a hollow it. log. <laughs> Right. But this is the instinct injured woman speaking, you know, they, yeah. they don't want to be the cougar in a log. They that's, that's, you know, been painted as, uh, 
you know, wild is bad. Wild right. is out of scary. control and scary dangerous. and dangerous. And, and that is not, um, you know, we're supposed to be very poised and very together. And, you know, the biggest concern is, oh, is my husband going to want to have sex with me again? You know, it's just, it's, yeah, it's patriarchy, patriarchy after patriarchy. I mean, it's just layers and layers and layers and layers of this. And the birth center is just, could... oh, I'm sorry. The mess. I hear people say, well, oh, the mess. mess. Yeah, it's going to look like a mess. Dexter, a Dexter murder. That's what I heard recently. I'm like, if you don't can't deal with a mess in your house, you shouldn't have a child. <laughs> right. Exactly. But also like, I mean, yes, I'm not, I, I'm not going to say that there aren't some messy bursts, but like, do people picture blood splattered all over the walls? Like it definitely does not look like a murder scene. And I think that is very, very disrespectful <laughs> to what it actually is. Absolutely. You're right. It's a total myth of just how messy it is. Also, like, that's a place where it's great to have, have some, you know, some female friends come clean up. Like, I, I do think it's important to remember that a lot of women, especially when we're talking about unattended birth, that um, a lot of women are responsible for 100% of the housework in their house. Mm -hmm. And that their dynamic with their male partner, that's not going to there's, you're not going to get a pass after you just had a baby. Mm -hmm. So that's a whole other problem too, of like, I do see a lot of very patriarchal families choosing the birth center mm -hmm. and maybe part of, you know, I mean, like, how do you, how do you help a woman deconstruct that when her whole culture is based on that? But here's the thing is, I just want to demystify healthcare to a certain point that friends can learn to give each other sutures. Mm -hmm. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. Like people, the Hesperian Institute trains people all around the world to do all kinds of stuff. There's those great books uh, where there is no doctor, where there is no midwife, where there is no dentist. You can learn to do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, the where there is no dentist one has how to use a, um, you know, those egg beaters with the, <laughs> the, the, you know, with the little crank, like how to turn that into a drill to drill out your friend's cavities. Right. But again, in the, in the privilege, you know, America, you know, is everything separated and, and we don't have any authority over our bodies, you know, that that's all, um, that sounds so barbaric. And, and obviously part of our privilege is like, we don't have to do that, you know, right. but it's so much simpler than, than driving somewhere and waiting 12 hours, which is what a non-emergent transfer would look like here. You mm. know, like you're going to have to wait a long time to get sewn up. Plus you're going to get a big lecture mm -hmm. and you might have CYFD on your tail, you right. know? Oh, it's so scary. <laughs> it's, totally. Yeah. It's very scary. And that's the thing of getting back to like, have we thrown out the sacred archetype of what it means to be with women in birth and be a midwife and how women can learn that. Like you can learn to help sew each other up. Like we, what we're really missing is community. That's another one of these vectors of this storm yeah. of women don't have a group of, of five women who help each other out with their births. Mm -hmm. And chances are, if you've got a group of five to 10 women, there's at least one personality in there who would totally love to learn to sew people up. Mm-hmm. Totally. And, and not to say she should be elevated or anything like that, but it's like, okay, there's probably somebody else who's a better cook and somebody else who's great hanging out with toddlers. And all of this is what women need is community, you know, which is the thing that's been broken so badly by patriarchal capitalism that we're all just completely isolated and atomized. And it's like the splitting of the atom of, of what's happened to us as moving from community to individualism. And like the splitting of the atom, there's all this toxic reactivity and, and 
and then, and then centering of their husbands, right? Yes. Like that's, that's kind of what I see is like the women that I know who birth in community who are well supported by women are not obsessed about their husband's comfort with their free birth or their home birth. There is a distinct, um, it is a distinct injury of, of this lack of community and this lack of sisterhood that women are absolutely obsessed with centering their male partners in their birth experiences, in their right. pregnancies and in their postpartum. It is, it is fascinating to witness right. unfolding every day. Yeah, it is. And it's very, it's so, so common and it's, um, it's very unfortunate. So, yeah, I mean, there's like, it's so easy to focus just on like, oh, what licensed midwives and professionalized midwives and CNMs are doing wrong. But the whole culture is so broken. Yeah. It's so broken. And you have to look at the whole web of it. And then when you look at the whole like web and how it's in tatters, then it gets it gets pretty um, overwhelming. You know, <laughs> really see the whole of like, oh, we are really messed up as a species right now. But that comes back to repairing the web where I just feel like absolutely healing, healing birth, returning to maternal fierceness, returning to maternal instinct, mm -hmm. centering the world around maternal instinct is the only thing that's going to heal the world. And I think focusing only on birth is a huge problem because again, like I, you know, I'll just say for my own births and for most normal uh, births where the woman was able to just go wild and get the baby out, women don't need someone so much at the birth. They need someone after, after the yeah. birth. They need someone before. So really it's about um, being someone who serves women in your daily life. So what the way I would say, if I, if there's a young woman who wants to start attending births, um, create community, really like be a hub of community in, in the place where you live, root yourself, like really learning to root yourself and committing to a piece of land, even I'm not saying owning land, but committing to the, the land base you live on, putting your roots down, calling in the ancient energies of that place, being of that place, and then being a keystone species in that space. So make yourself like the ironwood tree where where women and children are attracted to come sit under you because you mm -hmm. help feed them, you help them do their dishes, you exactly. help them navigate the healthcare system if they need that, you help them navigate all the systems that they're stuck navigating. You, um, not to be an authority over their birth process, to, but to be a sister and and a servant to them mm -hmm. um, is, is how you become a midwife. I mean, that's how it's happened in the past. And I think this whole idea of like, I just want to attend births. Like I, I get so frustrated with, with doulas and even midwives now who are like, I mean, so many midwives are like, well, I, I just, you know, I have the doula do the labor mm -hmm. sitting and I show up when the birth, I'm like, yeah, way to miss the whole freaking point. Home birth midwives are saying that and yep. then they're out of there. Like as soon as an hour after the placenta, they're, they're packing up. Oh, and even if that, I just interviewed a woman a couple weeks ago who said her midwife left while the placenta was still inside her. What a license. Yes. Really? Yep. And she, cause she ran to another birth and her apprentice handled the rest. Wow. Okay. So yeah, that's not good form. But then with the, the doulas, like I meet endless doulas who are like, well, I'm, I'm a professional. I'm there to attend births. I'm not coming and doing dishes, Gross. but you know, I, 
okay, like, I just want to say, like, we do women a huge disservice by pretending anything outside of them can help them get their baby out. And if a woman thinks, like, my giant ball and my rebozo and my box of Mm -hmm. snippy oils is going to do anything to help Mm -hmm. her get her baby out, that's where we need to start is deconstructing that idea. Mm -hmm. Because nothing outside of you is going to get your baby out. Right, because there's a lot of unlearning. I mean, we women, female socialization is like that thumb is on you from the second you get out of here, out of, out of your own mom, you know, even and before. even before now with the with the prenatal ultrasounds uh-huh. and people projecting gender onto children prenatally, which is just insane. Mm-hmm. And the same people who are into that are still saying gender assigned at birth. I'm like, what culture do you live in? Right. Everyone I know is projecting gender from 16 weeks on. Mm-hmm. If not. From the second they can get a test or an ultrasound. Yeah, from the very second of it that's important to them. So yeah, from that point, and things have gotten so much worse just in my lifetime. Like I'm, I'm not even 50 years old and I, the changes that I've witnessed are just so, so um, heavy to to acknowledge of um, really going from free to be you and me in the 70s to mm. now every newborn girl I see wearing this tight headband, so tight that it's misshaping her skull and, you know, to mark her female, Mm -hmm. to mark her that being female is painful, being female is uncomfortable. And being female means the male gaze is on you from Mm -hmm. the first second. Like your appearance is important from feminine appearance is important. So yeah. How do women deconstruct all of that before giving birth, it's, it's, um, it's really hard and it's getting harder. And, and you're right. Like it is all a process of moving a little further each time that 20 week ultrasound though, that like, we have to hit hard on ultrasound and telling people like, do not use that technology. Uh, We're trying, man. It is, it is intense. It's intense to witness. People are so bonded to it. It's, it's like critiquing, their religion Uh at this point, they're really so bonded to it, but there, there is no such thing as a 20 week ultrasound for, for reassurance. Like, you know, the vast majority of people at 20 weeks are going to be told something looks concerning. Mm -hmm. It's, it's hard. It's, it's hard because, you know, those are also the women that I do want to serve and that I do want to be, um, helping and supporting and, um, again, it kind of goes back to that analogy of like, if women are taking crumbs and we're trained to take crumbs, kind of any step outside of that is encouraging to me. Um, and yes, it is. Ultrasound is this massively loyal, um, technology that's so new and so, so deranged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely deranged. So, um, it's, it really is, a very apt rite of passage for our particular sitting in front of a screen culture, our virtual reality culture, that of course you have to do this virtual reality confirmation. Like, is the baby doing fine in the virtual world? You know, (laughs) it's, um, it's, it really is um, a very clear, like technocratic Mm -hmm. rite of passage for people, but they can't see it that way. We're always so good at critiquing, past societies of like, oh, they were crazy. Like, you know, we're, we're just not as good at, um, looking at what we're doing now. (laughs) No, because we'd have to look at ourselves and we'd have to, you know, stand up for it and make something different. And yeah, I mean, it's, and of course, obviously free birthing women in particular are put in such a 
a challenging social position, obviously, because that is majorly dissenting of, of, you know, to their family and to their own birth stories and to, um, everything, you know, in their community. And so, you know, I know lots of women who are, you know, they get the ultrasound, um, even in thinking, which is, I think totally backwards, but I know women uh, who get ultrasounds so that they have this quote unquote proof of health if CPS gets called, which makes no sense. You know, like, let's go ahead and put ourselves on the radar to then not be on the radar. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And also what we all need to understand when we're dealing with those patriarchal authoritarian systems They run on the rules of the witch trials. Like if they're on you, you can't win. Mm -hmm. You can't win. Nothing's going to protect you. If they, if they're on your tail, if she sinks, she was innocent. Right, right, right. So it's, it's, it's foolish to live your life trying to appease those systems because you can't win in those systems. Well, and that's what I keep seeing in our group is women from trauma wanting to not return to the system and yet still very much being loyal to the system, but not really realizing it from an ignorant standpoint saying, um, you know, how do I, if I transfer, which in my mind, I usually hear when, you know, if, if I transfer, um, how do I maintain my autonomy, you know, in a transfer? How do I, how do I stay sovereign in a transfer? And it's like, that says to me, you don't understand anything about the system you're acting like you don't want to be a part of. No, you can't stay sovereign in that system. You can't. And yeah, it is. It's very sad. Um, And it's a hard place to be because I think the other, you know, I know a few things about birth, having given birth and been to a lot of births. And um, one thing I know is if you have any dogma or rigidity, you're that's you're you're in for you're in for some dissolution of that. And um, and how do you come to a free birth from a place of, of, um, total power, not reaction, not dogma, not rigidity. Because if you're rigid about it, like I, I will not ever go to the hospital. Chances are the way birth works is you're going to end up having to confront that. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's all a trick. I mean, it's really like what we need is a lot of, um, what could be called, you know, spiritual practice Mm -hmm. of of really being centered being, um, in a place of not reacting, but, but acting with, with the flow and, um, responding rather than reacting because it, you know, it's true. Like the, the specter, the hospital could happen, you know, but you don't go skiing, assuming you're going to end up in the hospital, but it could happen. Right. And that's, know? that's what I say back to these women is, you know, if you're only transferring, for an emergency or because you've decided you really feel more comfortable there, then that's the trade-off. But, but you will lose sovereignty. You will lose authority. That is, that is just true. And make sure that trade-off is worth it because of course there are situations where that's worth it. Absolutely. Um, but you know, it's hard because this is all very, it's just stories because we have compartmentalized birth in such a successful way in our culture, it's not enough, you know, it's just stories. And so unfortunately we're seeing this massive wave of women who are still choosing to birth in captivity and then getting brutalized and then leaving. And I wish, you know, I wish so badly that there was, um, 
a wider, you know, opportunity, a wider path for women. But it is, you know, free birth sounds super hardcore and radical for most women, especially first time moms who have been trained their whole lives that their bodies are broken and they can't be trusted and they need authorities and, you know, all right. of the stuff that we know that most women are. And so then, um, then their only option if even that in most states is is a licensed midwife, but that obviously comes with major, major, major problems with most of the um, most of the women. You know what happens right. if they're still pregnant at forty two? You know how many stories I hear of a woman hiring a licensed midwife at forty weeks, starting to stress sweeping and castor oil and induction at 40 weeks because again the midwife is in an impossible situation where she's going to have to abandon care at 42 and so it's you know it's like this whole weird sickness that starts um right that's so stressful to both the midwife and I've worked for midwives I've seen you know on the midwifery side I've seen how painful and confusing it is. Um, and, and the mental gymnastics of it's better to push it and it's better to at least start it because if I can attend her at home, you know, it's better to do it that way. Um, then of course, you know, the induction into most likely C-section, you know, at 42 weeks. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a no win situation when you, when you let the state have control of it, it's no win. And this isn't a new problem. There's that great book, um, the history of midwifery by, I think it's Hillary Mandel is her name. And it's the history of European midwifery starting in like the middle ages. And she documents the cycle of the city state or the, you know, the authorities coming in and, um, cracking down on the midwives mm. and usually to put male attendants in place mm -hmm. and then an underground, like, so midwives are going to jail and, and there are no midwives, then an underground rising up. And then those women, clamoring for state recognition, mm -hmm. getting state recognition, then the state recognized midwives going after the unlicensed mm -hmm. midwives. It's genius. And then the state getting rid of the licensed midwives. Yep. So it's, and it's just, and then the whole thing starts again and it's happened every like 125 years wow. in Europe. And I think because time, you know, like time streams are speeding up, we're seeing it, but actually that we're kind of on that same time frame mm -hmm. here in the United States. It's not, we're not off that time frame. We're just a newer country. And one of the most genius results of the patriarchy is turning women on women, you know, turning right. the oppressed on the oppressed. And we see it all over and we see it globally and we see it um, over a very long period of time. And we see it very much in the birth world. You know, we see it with gender identity issues. We see it with surrogacy. We see it with, um, with everything, it, you know, everything right. to do with being woman, you know, all these people who in theory on paper would be more powerful allied who actually are on the same side ultimately because we are, you know, we are experiencing uh, gender oppression in all of these different ways. And yet licensed midwives turn on non-licensed midwives and free birthers and hospital birthers, you know, just the whole thing. And really we're all the oppressed class that should be fucking enraged and ally together to, to make some real change. And yet it continues and continues and continues. Right. Exactly. And it's, um, and again, like any critique of it is weaponized against mm -hmm. the person making the, like the critique with, um, you're judging women. Where right. It's like, no, and I'm shaming judging, women. I'm judging the crappy choices women are given. I'm not judging women for making choices within that tiny spectrum exactly. of bad choices. 
Well, and that's what's really going to change it. The critiquing of the system, I will say for me personally, learning how to critique what I am experiencing, what I'm witnessing, what I'm hearing, and you know what other people are saying to me, that is what has led me to freedom. I mean, that mm-hmm. has led me to, to, to so much, but it was only in critiquing um, that I was really able to see it you know, and, and I don't have birth trauma, so that's huge because I don't have to face, I don't have to face this whole system that has betrayed me. I mean, on a, on a lifelong level, I certainly can. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, growing up in a Catholic school and, and all of the ways, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a woman, so I have experienced all of that, but, um, but exactly. I mean, that's what we come up against a lot with free birth society is, you know, to, to have a stand on anything means you have a stand against something. And, we are so deeply socialized to believe that that is not the way and that we're supposed to people please everybody and don't take a stand on anything and don't hurt anyone's feelings. And, um, you know, and anger is bad and, um, that's not the way to dismantle the patriarchy. I mean, even feminists that I know, they really believe that the way is through compromise and bridge building and, um, you know, being, being loving and compassionate and seeing the other side. It's like, okay, cool. Where are men doing that? Where, mm-hmm. when are doctors talking about building bridges? Like, where are we seeing this at all? And it really is only yeah. in critiquing that I'm seeing women um, be willing to get fierce and get angry. And then they make pretty powerful different decisions. But I think that doctors are all about promoting false bridges that, that may, like, keep their level of power. Like, here in my town, there's now... Um, uh, midwife assisted gentle cesarean yeah. is offered in the hospitals where the, the nurse midwives are acting as cesarean second assists and women get to pick which music they want. These are all planned yeah. cesareans. So yeah. the vast majority of them are certainly not necessary unless someone's got like a total previa or something like that, you know, but, um, which is very so rare. These are, like, these are exactly. And usually that's caused by a previous unnecessary cesarean. Right. So it's, Perfect. um, so they're all planned cesareans. The women get to choose their music and they, it's all like super gentle, sweet. And it's like you, major abdominal surgery is never gentle. Mm-hmm. Like this is like the ultimate patriarchal reversal here. But those are the kind of bridges mm. the medical system is, is always happy to make. Well, yeah. And, another instrument of, of the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Pinkwashing the same old problem. And instead of, um, I mean, really, like we we should acknowledge that cesarean is is major abdominal surgery. It's brutal on your body. It's very hard to recover from. But our culture has now normalized surgery so much that we act like it's no big deal. No, it's just belly. Yeah. It's belly birth. It's just right. it's another form of birth. Right. You know, right. It, just- it, and how dare we say what it actually is, which is an extraction. And yes, yeah. women, it is their birth experience, absolutely, and. It is also having your baby pulled out. And it is, I have been uh, told that that is hate speech. Right. You know, for, for literally saying what it is. And I don't, I don't mean to be, um, what's the right word? You know, I don't mean to take away from, from anybody's experience, but you didn't give birth. That's not what birth is. And it is so upsetting that that is so radical to say because these instruments of the patriarchy, you know, these major, major pages, birth pages all over the internet are so committed to the reframe and to the, um, 
you know, to that everything is birth and everything is great. And, you know, your scar is your power. And it's like, hold up. This is why more and more women are getting C-sections. Don't we right. need, you know, we, to, to talk about reclaiming birth and to talk about um, even normal birth has been filtered into that it's hateful and that it's woman on women crime. And, oh, my God, we're just we're losing it, man. And if we can't talk about what cesarean actually does and how it disrupts bonding, how it disrupts uh, maternal intuition and maternal instincts, how, how it disrupts everything to birth that way. How can we talk about our country's um, horrific rates of postpartum mood disorders? Right. How can we talk about all the nursing problems that are happening? If we can't discuss epidural for what it is of like giving birth numb from the waist down, tangled in tubes and wires attached to machines. If Babies we on drugs. Yeah. I've been told that's hateful speech mm-hmm. to say that. I'm like, that's exactly what's happening there. Right. That's just a description of what's happening there. But because we're told we have to remain in denial, mm-hmm. we're all in this situation of, um, of what it's like to be like raised in like an alcoholic family where we're not allowed to talk about what's really going on. Like everyone has to maintain the denial. Mm -hmm. And, and I think anybody's ever dealt with addicts or, um, you know, it's, it's not so much the addiction, it's the denial that's Mm -hmm. hard to deal with. That's the part that's maddening. Yeah. So like how, how do we, you know, get our language back? Well, and this ties, this ties into Christianity and, and the willingness to, you know, act as if this stuff makes sense and live, live with this, you know, non-critiquing of their belief system. You know, it's all so deeply tied in. Mary Daly talks about that, of just the collective gaslighting of the, the Eucharistic dogma and how it paved the way for all sorts of patriarchal lies. Like once you get people to pretend they believe this thing, that's obviously not true. Mm -hmm. It's obviously not true that that the priest is literally turning that that piece of bread into Jesus's body, but everyone has to pretend to uh-huh. believe it. So it is. It is just a new variation. So we're dealing with this like neo techno patriarchy, um, neoliberal techno patriarchy. Right, that's the worst. <laughs> yeah, as choices. But all of these things that are coming on that are being sold as liberation are just variations on the same thing. Like um, in my town, it's the nitrous oxide. Like they're uh-huh. really pushing that as like, um, an enhancement to mm-hmm. your natural birth as you know, that's a drug. And there aren't any studies. I, I have looked and looked and I cannot find any studies that look at long-term outcomes with babies when the mothers have been using nitrous. They're like, it's, it's safe. It's safe, but it's really not proven to be safe. Is it contributing to the really high rates of breastfeeding dysfunction I'm seeing in, in women who, who've used nitrous? Is it, um, What's it doing? There, there's an old study from, I think, 1991 out of somewhere in Scandinavia. I think it's Sweden where they um, I have to look it up. But there, there's, there is a study that was looking at adolescent suicide that found a really high correlation between nitrous oxide use in labor and adolescent suicide. Gross. So this is, and of course, no further studies have been done when you right, find something right. like that. Um, anything, any study. There's no incentive. Uh, 
Yeah, there's no incentive to stop doing it, though those countries did stop using nitrous for a while. Um, one of my friends, who's a really great midwife in town, um, she's from Britain, and she's where they use nitrous all the time. And she's like, yeah, Britain has terrible abysmal rates of breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Is the nitrous contributing to that? Well, of course it is. Every, everything, yeah. everything is. I mean, birthing in captivity with drugs, birthing at home with drugs. I mean, birthing on drugs, of course it affects everything. And that that's where I think one of our big blind spots is, is birth is not the singular event, obviously. And when you have any concept of the hormonal matrix and, and third stage and everything that, that goes together and that one predicts the next, you know, that it's all, it's all connected. Um, but we treat birth obviously in every way as this very singular event. You go away, you have your baby, you come home, you know, and then, oh my gosh, we're so surprised that everyone's depressed and and not bonding and not breastfeeding and marriages are falling apart. You know, the aftermath of trauma is, is just, it's become so normalized that we've lost sight of the actual things that are causing it. It's become so normalized that the word postpartum Uh is now used as as a synonym for postpartum depression. I know when people use the word postpartum, they mean depression. Mm -hmm. That is so sad. It's It's, so sick. It reminds me of um, when I, I worked in in, a, in in patient psychiatric hospital and women would use the word domestic to mean domestic violence. Ouch. They would say things got domestic. Wow. Things got domestic. And, you know, and that was an eye opener for me because when I think, oh, you know, things got domestic at my house, it means like I baked bread. That's then. what I was just going to say is like I'm yeah. making a casserole. <laughs> right, right. Or even cleaned up, you yeah. know. I mean, it's like yeah. – like, to me, that word still means maintaining a home, but in the mainstream vernacular, domestic now means violence. Postpartum mm-hmm. means depression. This this is tragic. This is These are deal. very, very bad indicators for us as a species. I went to uh, my Cairo appointment a couple weeks ago and the, the receptionist said, um, you know, and she knows I have a little baby and she said, uh, some. we were talking about postpartum, the experience, and she said, um, she said, well, you know, I mean, it's totally normal to have, to have postpartum depression. Like pretty much everybody does. And I paused and I said, I just have to say, not only is that not true, but I experienced bliss and euphoria. And I'm so sorry if that wasn't your experience, but please do not perpetuate the lie that, that it is just par for the course, you know? And, and, you know, she kind of was taken aback, but I can't be quiet about that because I have been told to express my joy and my euphoria, um, is hate speech. You know, I have been exactly. told that, you know, but where's our lighthouse? Where is our compass? If we don't talk about the, how much, you know, I love giving birth or that Yolanda, my partner loves giving birth. And if we don't talk about our joy and how wonderful postpartum is, um, and there are virtually no platforms for that, um, other than our own, you know, and I'm constantly having to block and delete people who are saying that I'm, uh, I, it's just because I'm a privileged bitch. It's yeah. like, what? And that's, that's the issue with that term privilege and how, um, I hear that again and again, that women who have had good births are privileged mm-hmm. and they, they can't, so they're not silencing. allowed to speak. They need to, they're silenced because mm-hmm. of their privilege. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, again, very, you know, when we start, uh, framing normal as privileged and privileged as bad, mm-hmm. then, um, then we're, we really are unable to promote normalcy. Exactly. Yeah. We're losing it. Yeah. I mean, when yeah. the, when the whole culture thinks postpartum depression is par for the course, right. We've right. lost the, something big. Right. To the point where the very word postpartum is synonymous with depression in their minds. 
it's it's bad that we and that's another thing that um the mainstreaming of midwifery, the professionalization and the state control of midwifery has done, like even the language has moved away from normalcy where there's a real, um, like we've normalized pathology Mm -hmm. now instead of trying to get back to health and what is a wild, what does it look like? What does wild birth look like? What is, what does it look like when a woman just goes animal and births on her own body's power now? Um, Absolutely. It's become a, a pathological model, even in the system of licensed home birth midwifery. It's well, and really the whole, sad. Yeah. And the whole leftist, like no one's feelings can ever be hurt. We can't leave anyone out. We can't exclude anyone. That whole concept, you know, that is where C-section is birth. Everything is birth. Everything is great. Right. Everything is power. Everything's empowering, uh, which I freaking hate that word. Um, mm-hmm. You know, everything is is great. And so let's not critique and and talk about anything, but we've also in doing that completely lost our compass. Absolutely. And we've lost any sense of like normal diversity of, um, you know, this whole idea of everything has to be designed to accommodate everyone is the philosophy of like just becoming total cyborgs, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's just like one, zero, zero, one, zero, zero. Like it's every, everyone just fits into the matrix, um, as, as like a, just an individual unit in there. And instead of, no, not everything has to accommodate everybody. I mean, birth is, you know, it's fine for, it's, it's, it, we should celebrate normal birth. We should celebrate when women have had good births. We should strive for that to be the norm. And, and we should have dances and rituals and healing for people where that hasn't been their experience, Mm -hmm. which is what, traditional cultures all around the world have always done. If something didn't go well, it's like, well, we're going to need to have a ceremony to energetically correct that. But in the norm, not- when, when birth is trauma, you yeah. know, then, then it's, it's completely flipped on its head. Exactly. Exactly. So now what do our birth rituals, if we have any left, like we have these bizarre, you know, baby showers where, um, people do bizarre things like melt, melt candy bars and disposable diapers, <laughs> like very bizarre rituals. That uh, we have now. Right. And, and it's all have, about what you buy and, and, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. And bringing things and registries. Yeah. It's, um, so, you know, it's really easy to look at the problem I am interested in, you know, your question of how, how do we repair the web? And, you know, that's, it's, it's harder to stay in that place, isn't it? It's harder to stay in that place of what do we do to fix it? And yeah, we have to see what's going wrong. Right. We have to name it. And And I will say, I mean, I do find hope every day in the women that I talk with and I do uh, birth trauma debriefing sessions. And so I do those pretty regularly. And, um, most of the women that I do these sessions with are either soon to have their birth outside the system or they're planning a pregnancy where they will do that. And just hearing women be willing to critique their births and, take responsibility, but also, you know, name their abusers and to critique what happened to them and, and the power in saying that shouldn't have happened. Had I known better, you know, fuck the system. You know, there's so much power in, um, 
women who are coming out of their trauma and doing the work and reflecting. And it's so much harder to do that because everywhere they look, they're getting, a, you know, at least you have a healthy baby and, um, you know, all of that bullshit. And so I do think one piece to repairing the web is exactly what we're doing, that we are women who are holding normal birth, who will not stop talking about it, who are lighthouses in their community of critiquing the systems that are harming women and children and women come. I mean, I know women come to you. I know women come to me and, and other women like us. So at least there is that, 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 you know, and that's what you were kind of speaking to earlier of just be someone who serves women, just be someone who shows up and cleans or, um, you know, is someone that can answer questions and, and just be that lighthouse. And the more that those women, um, you know, feel, encouraged to do that and come to you and, you know, then they become the lighthouses and it just starts spreading. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. It, yeah. That's, that's hopefully how it's going to go. <laughs> and it is happening. You know, it, it is, it's not nearly on the, you know, I vacillate between like, why isn't everyone so fucking angry? Like, why is everyone not full of rage to then, you know, having one-on-one -on -one interactions with people where like, okay, they're trying to get their head around it. They're trying to, um, speak to it. And, and it really is about, um, us lifting those voices and being there for each other. And even if it happens behind closed doors, at least it's starting to happen. Right. And it is the, you know, the free birthers are the women holding down normal birth. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I love it that when free birthers are vocal, I also understand when, when they feel they need to be private about their experience. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Because it's a dangerous place to be. And that hate that comes at them from people with unresolved trauma mm -hmm. or people with extreme allegiance to the authoritarian system, it can be really over the top. I do really caution women against, um, their primary, community relationships being in the virtual world, because I think that's more of the same problem. Mm -hmm. And I think the only reason a woman would be consulting people online about that is if she doesn't have actual community, which, sure. is, which is, again, you know, that's certainly not a judgment of her if she doesn't have it. Like we, we are in a really bad space right now where people don't have community. They don't have real relationships Oh, I would say the vast majority of women in our group who are free birthing, we are the only people they know that either know or that ha aren't, aren't hating on it. I mean, it's, it's yeah. so sad. Right. Right. So how do we help people like, you know, actually create on the ground community? Um, one of my, well, my former midwifery partner, my, my friend, my mother figure, my mentor, Barb Pepper used to say, um, she was very, she would call technology tricknology. Like she was very opposed to it. And she's an elder, you know, she's, she's been around for a very long time. And, um, and one of the young midwives came at her once of like, well, there's, we can't organize without the internet. And Barb just sipped her tea and very calmly said, people got to Woodstock. Right. <laughs> I know. I feel mixed about it because I'm constantly being contacted by women saying, because of your podcast, because of your group, because of your stories, um, I just birthed in power and I wouldn't have done it without the normalization of, of your Facebook group. And so, yes, that's amazing. And that really is making change, but we can't stop there. That yeah. then you then have to go out and start doing village prenatals and start, you know, rallying your community and start being a lighthouse in your community for normal birth. It has to have 
the second step of re-entering into your community, it absolutely has to, or else, right, or else, like, where's this going to go? Right. When they start censoring the internet, you know, which is already happening with that policing that's going on, um, you know, it can't be, you're right, it can't be the last step. It's like, what's, what's the steps, you know, toward, toward, and it has to be repairing actual community. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, they've got us so isolated right now. They're really, the powers that be know exactly what they're doing by keeping us isolated. And it, it is another thing contributing to just this total wounding and disempowerment of, of mothers is people don't have community. Exactly. You no, know? like I talked to the young women. The smartest way to keep us down. Exactly. Exactly. Where even playgroups aren't happening. There are four pay playgroups now in my town where you like, you pay money to go hang out with other families. Mm-hmm. Like people need to just rebuild community. And I don't, I'm not trying to just harp on that, but I guess in the true sense of like who the harpies were, it is a good thing to harp on mm-hmm. of like, this is a horrible situation the patriarchy has created and we have to fix it. And well, and it goes both ways because then when women don't have the support and space and freedom to go you know, in their minds, it's, oh, I'm so busy. I have to clean the house. I have three kids. I have to get them to school. I'm running around. You know, my husband works 40 to 80 hour weeks. Like where's the spaciousness to even organize such a thing? Right. Right. So then what do you do? Like, do you like, and I don't even know where people can meet people. I know when I was a very broke single mom, um, with minimal community, I used to sit in front of the food co-op and like accost people asking them if they'd like to be my friend. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. I'd just be like, hey, you got a baby and seem cool and we eat the same things. Right, right. So, you know but now it's all stranger danger. And this is a huge, huge through line of our radical birthkeeper training that Yolanda and I are, are making. And, and it is going to be an online course, but it's very important to me that we're traveling around teaching this um, and holding this space in, in person because community and in-person community and getting off your computer is one of the biggest through lines of our course, which ironically will also be an online course. But, um, you know, but that's the paradox of the time we're living in. These are crazy times for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Well, well, I, I think, like I said, the free birthers are, are holding it down like that. That is who is holding the birth wisdom. That's who is holding true female sovereignty and true, you know, maternal, uh, fierceness and autonomy. And I all hail to the free birthers. And I love more and more. I'm hearing about stories of women, holding space for their other women who have free birthed then are going and, and holding space for first time moms, you know, that they know. So it is, you know, that's another huge branch to this. That's important. You know, women who've walked through normal birth, um, showing up for other women, you know, to walk through normal birth and it is happening. You know, I hear it. It's, it's the bittersweetness of being in the middle of, of this hurricane is, you know, you hold all the trauma and all the pain and all the heartache constantly. And you see what's changing and you see some hope and you see, um, women really being galvanized, you know, around the world. So it's, it's a lot. (laughs) Great. That's wonderful to hear. And that is, that's how, how it needs to happen is women helping women to, um, we have to get out of this toxic cult of individuality. Mm -hmm. And remember we do need each other, that there is something important in that archetype of the midwife of the, the woman who is with, Absolutely. It's just been so bastardized and co-opt. I don't even like to use it anymore. It's just, it's been so, um, 
ugh, it's just become so patriarchal and so controlled. Absolutely. And, and in Canada, my understanding is you're not even allowed to call yourself a mm-hmm. midwife. It's illegal to call yourself a midwife if you're not a state. Yeah, the government midwife. owns it. Yeah, no, that's how I feel about the word doula. I cringe when I hear the word doula. It's like, oh, like, I, you know, I know this does not describe all doulas, but I really feel um, like doulas, you know, hold women's hands while they're being brutalized. Like they, they help, they, they help normalize um, collaboration with a really terrible system. Absolutely. all too frequently. There's a great old radical feminist book called Fraternity Gang Rape. It's definitely a bummer of a read. It's terrible read. It's it's um, by a cultural anthropologist about the culture of um, ritualized gang rape in fraternities on campus. Um, you know, we're definitely that's up with the Kavanaugh hearings right now. Mm-hmm. But it talks. There's a whole chapter in there about the women who are like the little sisters in the fraternity who um, come to parties and try to help keep women from getting raped. Like they'll keep their eyes open and, and sort of try to protect a woman if she's getting too drunk or if she sees the guys targeting her, they don't. And these women are um, much less likely to get raped by the right. fraternity guys. Cause they're like their friends though. Sometimes they do get raped. And then sometimes they actually hold a woman's hand while mm-hmm. she's being raped and help clean her and up. Help after. Clean up. Yep, exactly. When I read that, I stopped being a doula. Right. <laughs> that that was I realized that was really heavy hitting and really hard and I have many 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 memories that will always haunt me of doing exactly that and of uh holding a woman's hand while they ripped a baby out and and the doctor being like keep her calm or or you know like that it's my responsibility to be right. um to be that person that looks in her eyes and um as she's being sexually assaulted and and brutalized and you know, it's, it's not something that I was able to talk about very well in the community, you know, of Los Angeles. I was met with a lot of reframe and a lot of, oh, but somebody should be there. And, you know, we can't stop the system, but we can help, we can do what we can. And maybe we'll stop an episiotomy. And I just, you know, finally was like, this is fucking whack. Like this is not enough. And I am accepting money. This is so unethical that I've built my entire business on enabling a system that's predicated on abusing women and children. And I accept money and act and sell my services as if I'm going to make a difference. Holy shit. Right. And to carry no actual responsibility. Like that's the thing. Like I got to say for at least the midwives, like they're carrying a ton of responsibility. If anything goes down, they're screwed. You know, they're holding the responsibility. Say what you will about state regulation. At least they've taken that step of being willing to like hold the whole thing where doulas have no responsibility. Like no one's ever going to sue them. No one's, you know, like they, they are not, they're, they're, handing women, they're actually like helping women deal with authoritarian abuse. Mm -hmm. They're rather than like being the authority. Right, 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 right. It's, it's such a, um, it's like being a nun in, in the old school or being like, it definitely is a patriarchal paraprofession. Build as this feminist alternative way of making a business. Absolutely. And again, I know that's not 100% of, of women who call themselves doulas, but that is what that industry is about. Yeah. I mean, that is the training. Absolutely. It, yeah. And it took me a very long time to understand that because I started it so young and, um, 
you know, and you get all, there's a lot of self-importance in the professionalism. And I remember experiencing that in my early twenties of, um, just how professional I was and that I was asked to be on, you know, the first hospital board of doulas ever, you know, and there's so much importance in, um, you know, like feigned importance in this. And then, you know, finally you realize that it's not good. (laughs) Right. Simply put. A homeopathic remedy to inoculate us against that self-importance of professionalization you're talking about. I would love to get that into all the teenagers, you know, I just get in the drinking water. Right. Right. Cause I remember feeling that myself, like I'm a licensed professional. I'm changing the system. I'm, I'm making a difference when really that's a warning sign that we should all be warned against by our elders. Yeah. But the other toxic, another toxic vector in our culture is this hatred of elders mm. and refusing to listen to elders. Cause what do they know? Mm-hmm. So, okay. Well, well, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. Thank you. Yeah. I've been excited to connect with you. that's it for today, everyone. Join us next week for another episode of the Free Birth Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And remember, your body, your choice. Lots of love.